Morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and if you could please take your seats, and there are going to be people outside coming in whom we welcome. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, this panel, uh, which I, I know is going to be terrific, uh, moderated by Stephen Adler, who will introduce our panelists. Uh, Stephen, other than representing one of our most generous uh, sponsors of the festival, for which we thank Thomson Reuters very much, uh, is the Senior Vice President and Editorial Director for Thomson Reuters. Uh, before that, he had an enormously distinguished career in journalism, uh, where uh, uh, he was Editor-in-Chief of Business Week. Uh, he wrote for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, he was uh, instrumental in uh, The American Lawyer, wrote a very important book as a, a legal journalist, and as I said, now directs the efforts of Thomson Reuters uh, editorial activities. Stephen will introduce the panel, which is going to look uh, at questions about how better to bring drugs to market. Stephen. Great. Uh, thank you, Elliot. Uh, thanks to all of you for being here. Uh, this is a panel on healthcare solutions rather than on gloomy predictions. So uh, if that's what you're looking for, you're in the right place. Uh, our panelists are really leaders in finding exciting solutions to the problem that we're going to address today, and it's, it's really an extraordinary panel. I'm just going to give a brief introduction to the panel and the panelists, and then we'll dive in and hear from, uh, from them on the topic. The, the problem we're looking at is really the, uh, the drying up of the drug pipeline, and the phenomenon is, is that R&D has essentially been up dramatically over the past decade, down a little bit in the last couple of years, um, but new drugs coming to market have been going down. And there are many ways to measure this, but if you look at uh, FDA approvals of new drugs, interesting statistic, between 1996 and 1999, 157 new drugs were approved. Between 2006 and 2009, 74 were approved, so that's fewer than half. And for, uh, pharmaceutical companies have largely responded by acquiring other companies that had drugs in the pipeline or by licensing drugs from other companies. And the concern, obviously, is that that's not necessarily uh, improving uh, productivity in drug uh, discovery and not finding actually new treatments uh, for patients. Uh, there are a couple of reasons that are often cited uh, for this problem. Uh, one, which our panelists may or may not agree with, is that there's a view that a lot of the low-hanging fruit, the, the easier uh, conditions to find treatments for, uh, the, the low-hanging fruit has essentially been picked. Uh, there's blockbuster drugs for high cholesterol, high blood pressure, depression, um, and that we're now in the territory of more difficult complexes of drugs. We're looking at Alzheimer's disease, varieties of cancers that are simply harder to find solutions for. Uh, but what our panel is focusing more on is the, uh, the problem in the development uh, pathway, the, the difficulty getting drugs from early scientific uh, discovery through the pipeline, through the so-called valley of death where most drugs die, and on to treatments uh, for actual patients. And so we're going to be talking a lot about solutions and approaches um, to getting through that valley of death. Um, let me introduce our panelists. Uh, at the far end is John Crowley. Uh, John is CEO of Amicus Therapeutics, which focuses on finding drugs uh, for mostly rare genetic diseases. Uh, you probably know his story. He's uh, best known for his, his personal story. Uh, his uh, two young children were diagnosed with Pompe disease, and he dropped what he was working on and, and dove into the very, very complicated and difficult process of finding an experimental treatment that would save their lives. And his story uh, became famous because of a wonderful article in the Wall Street Journal by my former colleague, uh, Gita Anand, and uh, recently has been made into uh, the movie Extraordinary Measures. 
with Harrison Ford. So he'll talk a lot about both his personal story um, and uh, lessons for, uh, for drug development. Um, John Hagel, who's sitting in the middle, is co-chair of the Deloitte Center for the Edge. Uh, he is a prolific writer on strategy issues. He was a former head of strategy for McKinsey. And he's done really important research on organizational models to help solve this drug pipeline problem. And he's done uh, case studies that are really relevant to what we're talking about. Uh, he has a book out called The Power of Pull from Basic, Basic Books. And he has a, uh, a book signing later this afternoon. I always like plugging people's books. And so uh, you can go to his book signing. Um, Scott Johnson, sitting next to me, is founder and uh, president of the Myelin Repair Foundation. Uh, and Scott's personal story is also very compelling. He was diagnosed with MS when he was 20 years old in 1976. And he was told at the time that it would take 30 to 50 years to find a cure. And some people say, uh, some people will tell you that the same thing today. It'll take 30 to 50 years to find a cure. Um, he went about his business, uh, became an entrepreneur in, in a number of different industries, very successful. Uh, but in 2002, he turned his attention and his considerable skills to MS research and founded the Myelin Repair Foundation. And, and he's done an extraordinary job creating a, a new paradigm for drug research, a collaborative model that he'll also talk about today. And uh, Craig Sorensen, second from the end, is uh, VP of RD Network Design and Technology Integration at Vertex Pharmaceuticals, uh, which is a biotech company that develops drugs for such diseases as HIV, hepatitis C, and autoimmune disorder disorders. And Craig is working on creating global alliances to look at how you can do collaborations across borders and solve global health problems, and generally um, pioneering and finding new business models uh, for drug development. So, so they're all terrific panelists. And I thought given that each of them has such an interesting story to tell, uh, the best way to do this would be to give each of them a little bit of time at the beginning just to tell their story. Um, and then I'll follow up with questions. And then uh, 20 minutes before the end, we'll have questions from the audience. Um, I wanted to start with Scott and uh, to talk about the uh, Myelin Repair Foundation. What, what is the model? How did you get into this? Uh, what are the lessons for drug development for what you've been doing? Great. Thank you, Steve, very much. So um, I, uh, as, as Steve said, my background was all in business, uh, even though I'd had uh, MS for 25 years uh, when it came to 2001. Um, I began to look into uh, why it was that if someone was diagnosed today, they'd hear the same thing I had heard 25 years before, basically. And what I learned uh, was really disturbing. Uh, what had happened, if you look between the, the 1995, say, and, and the early 2000s, um, funding for academic research had actually doubled in real terms and is now at about $50 billion a year. And actually, uh, funding uh, for research and development at pharmaceutical companies, which is mostly development, not research, actually had doubled in real terms in that period as well, and was around uh, 50 to $60 billion a year. So we're now talking about, say, $110 billion a year being spent on medical research. And as Steve said, the number of new drug approvals is actually declining, and many of the approvals are more Me Too drugs or slight improvements on drugs that are already, already out. So I think what that tells you just at a high level is that that's a system that's not working. I mean, pouring more money in to the same way of doing it is not going to get you more drugs on the market. And so the more I, I plunged into this to just kind of learn how the system worked, it really seemed that at every step in the process, from uh, basic biological research in universities through uh, research at, at uh, companies and the gap in between, which, as Steve said, is called the valley of death, in every element, it was a system that was not functioning well. And it wasn't because of any evil intent or bad intents by any of the players. Everyone 
had their heart in what they were doing and had dedicated their careers to it. To me, it was just a system that had evolved over the 50 or 60 years prior to that that just had gotten too comfortable and, and, and just didn't work in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that would really produce results that people want. And it seemed to me that if you could implement a system that would work better, it would have huge implications. I mean, if you could cut the time to get drugs to market, then obviously it's roughly a billion and a half dollars to develop a drug. Maybe you can cut that to 750 million, which could reduce drug prices. If you get drugs out much faster for debilitating diseases, you cut the, the cost of, of care for individuals substantially. So these have big impacts on the economy. So it's a major problem. And so what we did as an organization, uh, like Steve said, I have multiple sclerosis, and so we thought, let's develop and demonstrate a model. Let's use myelin repair, which would be a, a, a treatment for multiple sclerosis, as a demonstration project. And when we put together our strategic plan back in 2003, we basically had two very clear goals. One was to get a treatment, uh, myelin repair treatment on the market. Uh, but the second was to develop and demonstrate a model that was so clearly superior to the status quo that all disease organizations would copy it. And so that's what we're about, is, is, is changing the system. And so what we do is, sounds incredibly logical and simple. I mean, and I'll just touch on a few points. First of all, you know, most people think actually the way we're doing it is the way it's already being done. And so partly what we have to do is explain how the current system works. You've got academics who are all in silos, who can't share information, who because of the grant system uh, only put in requests for incremental experiments, and it's a very lengthy serial process, and it's very slow and not oriented to actually therapeutic treatments because the problem is, is over the last 50 years, academics have gotten more and more removed from industry. They don't know what industry needs to develop a drug, and so academics are mostly answering interesting scientific biological questions, and they don't really know um, what industry would need, as I said. So I think what's interesting is, is as funding doubled in real terms between the mid-90s and the mid-2000s, around 2005, the number of papers published. And I often ask people, you know, how many academic medical papers do you think are published each year? And usually people will think about it and say, well, 15,000, 20,000, maybe 50,000. It's actually over 800,000 papers are published every year. And it actually creates kind of a problem because industry, and I think Craig can probably talk about this, when you've got 800,000 papers, how do you wade through and find the gems? Because I'd say only maybe 5% of those actually have something that would be relevant or interesting to industry. And so actually, almost the increased funding has had almost an opposite effect because it's, it's ballooned the number of papers and made it more difficult. So there's a lot of issues in, in academic research in terms of not having a research plan. I mean, one thing that I found just stunning back in 2001 and 2002 as I looked into this is I had just assumed that, you know, there was a research plan, whether it's the NIH or the, the, the disease organization that's associated with that disease, and no one has a research plan. So it's very hard to get to a goal if you don't have a plan. So what we do is we organize a team of experts, uh, the best in the world in the areas of expertise. We work with them to put together a research plan. We uh, actually have metrics. We, have, we manage the process which is very unique in terms of funding um, research with academics. I call the current system is really uh, fund and forget. There's a lot of time spent up front figuring out who you can give the money to, but once you give the money out, the assumption is, is that magically a paper will come out you know, five or six years later. 
Ours is very different. We're very hands-on working daily with our scientists to make sure that their work is going to be relevant. And then lastly, we, or secondly, we then take the research that comes out of there and we, we validate it more to industry standards so that we can then partner with industry because only industry has the pockets and the expertise to actually take things and do the drug discovery, do the clinical trials, and get to the end line. So we try and be involved in every element of the continuum so that we can speed up every step in the process. Great. That's a really good start, and we'll come back and, and talk about the issues in more depth. Uh, John Hagel, uh, you study uh, management theory, you study strategy, you've studied the Myelin Repair Foundation. Uh, what insights do you bring to uh, what's different, what's about this model, and, and how should we think about this more broadly in terms of drug research? Well, I'm going to even go broader because sure. I think the approach that the Myelin Repair Foundation is, is pioneering in, in this particular arena as Scott can testify, there have been more and more inquiries to MRF as to how to apply this exact same approach to a whole range of other diseases. Um, so it's, it's already encountering significant interest within the medical research community. I, I, I am not an expert on pharma or healthcare. I, I wanted to put this into an even broader context of how businesses and institutions in general are addressing the increasing challenge that we have that the expertise that we need in order to solve the increasingly difficult problems that we're addressing is highly distributed, not just geographically, but across institutions and disciplines and the silos that, uh, that prevent these people from coming together. And what MRF is doing is very consistent with a broader set of innovations that are going on across the world uh, in a variety of industries. So we've looked at this in motorcycles, apparel, financial services, agricultural products. You look across a very broad range of industries and there's a different way, a different approach to how you manage, configure and manage extended processes where there's a lot of interdependent activity required to ultimately come out with some outcome at the end of it. Uh, in traditional approaches, it's been highly, uh, tightly integrated, tightly specified activities. You've got process manuals that lay out in great detail exactly what needs to happen when. Uh, in this different approach, it's much more of what we call a process network, but it has to do with a different way of organizing the activity into loosely coupled modules of activity where you bring together a large number of participants across institutional boundaries and there's an orchestrator involved who basically decides who can come in and who, who stays out, uh, assigns roles and responsibilities across those, uh, that process and then monitors performance. And if I look at, we've spent time with MRF looking at their approach and it's very consistent with that kind of model. Um, one of the things that the modular loosely coupled approach allows is on the one hand optimizing across the entire process, but on the other hand leaving a lot of degrees of freedom within the modules of activity so that people can experiment and tinker and innovate in ways that will drive uh, learning and performance improvement much more rapidly than traditional models, which again are very top-down specified. So I think it's an interesting uh, model, not just for healthcare and, and medical research, but across many different industries. And just to make it tangible, I'll, uh, I'll briefly mention an example uh, that I'm sure very few of you actually know the company involved. It's called Portal Player. How many of you are familiar with Portal Player? Didn't think so. Uh, very representative. Uh, on the other hand, I'll ask how many of you are familiar with the iPod? 
Well, you know, there's a very interesting backstory around the iPod. Uh, the public image is Steve Jobs in the brilliance of his mind one day came up with this breakthrough innovation about bringing together this very innovative MP3 player and this online music service. Uh, in fact, years before, there was a startup in Silicon Valley called Portal Player, which set out with the ob observation that there was this emerging product category called digital music players, huge challenges around technology innovation on multiple dimensions, maintaining the quality of the music, power management in a small form factor, uh, and uh, ease of use. So there were a whole set of technology in innovations that had to go into developing this, this new product category. What Porta Player did was organize a global network of technology participants. They had hundreds of leading class technology players in a whole range of geographies. Everything from analog uh, software engineers up in uh, the highlands of Scotland to the major consumer electronics players in Japan to Texas Instruments. They had uh, software development players in India. And they brought all these people together around a very aggressive innovation agenda, which basically every six months they released a new MP3 player. And that forced all these participants to come together and integrate their various initiatives and efforts around this release. And, but they knew that if they didn't make it into that release, they would have a, another shot at six months later at a further release. So they stayed in the game over an extended period of time. Uh, when Steve Jobs was approached, by the way, by somebody else with the idea for combining a uh, mu online music service with this digital music player, uh, he had the insight to recognize that that was a brilliant idea. He hired the guy on the spot, uh, by, a guy by the name of Tony Fidel, and he gave Tony Fidel nine months to get an iPod out into the marketplace. Tony, fortunately, had spent a lot of time with Portal Player and knew that they had the device uh, that would basically serve as the basic uh, basis for, for the iPod and negotiated an arrangement with Portal Player to continue to innovate and develop the basic uh, digital music player. So I think it's a great example of the use of these process networks to drive really deep innovation, technology innovation in this case, uh, in a much more distributed way than most companies are, are familiar with. And I think it's, a, it's a, a great example of the application of this kind of model to very different environments. Great, thank you, John. Um, Craig, from the standpoint of a biotech company, uh, where does collaboration come in? Uh, how do you preserve your interests, your commercial interests, while uh, working with a, a variety of different players? So I'd like to start a little bit further back and something that you started and end up with something that Scott had said. And I think today that the industry, the pharmaceutical industry, is at a crossroads like it's never seen before. Over the next two years, two or three years, most of the blockbuster drugs that have been developed in the past 10, 15 years are coming off patent. Now normally this wouldn't be a problem because you would assume that there's additional blockbusters, if you will, waiting in the wings to take their place, but the sad fact is that's not in fact true. There's precious little in the wings waiting to fill this void, and most of the stuff that is there waiting in the wings that has gone through a fair amount of development is a lot of Me Too drugs. So we're making the same drugs to treat diseases the same ways and we're gonna end up with the same problems going forward. So we're at a major conundrum. So how do we deal with this? Steve mentioned the fallback position that we've used in the past, and that is look to the biotechs 
is not going to be viable for much longer because most of the biotechs that have the really good ideas, have the really good products coming out, have pretty much been picked over. So this concept of low-hanging fruit really is a, is a real phenomenon. The new startups in the biotech arena are precious and few, partly due to the, the uh, financial status of the world these days, but also the fact that in the rush to set up companies, most of the ideas that are, or shouldn't say most, a lot of the ideas that are coming up through the ranks through academia are really not ready for prime time. And so a lot of these players fall off the map rather quickly. And so we're left with just a few options there. Big Pharma has tried to address this, this gap in, in the continuum by looking to combine forces. And so you have a situation where you have major companies joining with another major company, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense because here you have someone who has a, a gap in their pipeline combining with someone else who has a gap in their pipeline. So now you have an even bigger company with the same gap in the pipeline and nothing coming up from behind. The answer in the short term, consumer health products. Go for creams, salves, um, uh, suntan lotion, things like that, in the hopes of driving uh, revenues that way so you can come up with some solution. Not a viable approach. So where are we? The only really viable way of moving forward is, I believe, investing in research because there's really not enough coming through the development side of the house, the R&D side. But this also has challenges in it because research is incredibly expensive. The numbers that Steve mentioned and that uh, Scott mentioned are probably an underestimate of what it really costs to bring a drug to market. And top, uh, put on top of that, the age of the blockbuster is probably behind us. So what are you going to do? We need to invest in research, which is incredibly expensive. It's incredibly risky. There's no guarantee that what you do is going to come to the forefront and to actually make it into the market as a drug into needed markets. So we need to come up with some other model. So one of the models that we have been successfully playing with now and actually have implemented across a number of therapeutic areas is this whole concept of the, the biotech pharmaceutical version of social networking. And it's a networking model. It's to reach out to the best in the world, wherever they may be, to leverage discoveries coming out of academia, coming out of foundations, coming out of national laboratories, and allowing people to do what they do best and put them into a situation where they are not asked to, to do things that they are not necessarily good at or they have to learn, but to put all their energies into what they do best. The challenge here is to, as uh, Scott mentioned, when you deal with an academic situation where a lot of the great ideas are coming to the forefront and have been for years now, is you've got to wade through so much literature, so much scientific literature, a lot of which is, you could argue, purpose-driven, but it's not purpose-driven research in the way that we need purpose-driven research in the pharmaceutical industry to bring new drugs to market. It's purpose-driven to get a paper onto the market, to get a paper out into the journals, which does great things for your academic career. And having an experience in the past as an academician, I can actually um, legitimately say that. But it really doesn't answer the need for bringing new drugs to needed markets. So models that, um, along the lines that Scott has mentioned, the MRF, are the wave of the future, as is the whole concept of networking bringing the best together, take risk appropriate to what you are able to, what you bring to the table. But then very importantly, and this is a key piece of the equation, the pharmaceutical partner has also 
got to be able to be willing, actually to be willing to share the reward and to share the reward proportionate to the risk that's taken. This is a major departure for the industry because as an industry, it's always a me, me, me. How much can I grab? How much territory can I grab and protect? Not that I'm going to do anything with it, but it just keeps everyone else from doing what, what I think I may want to do in the future. <laughs> this is a mindset that we have to get away from in the industry and to begin to look at this as a more holistic approach where we're all in this together and to put together the, again, the equivalent of a social network to do what we do best, bring the needed drugs out to the, out to the marketplaces. And I would also argue that, as we are doing at Vertex, that the same markets that we've been looking at today, the same ways we're doing things, are a wave of the past. Healthcare reform has almost certainly um, provided the death knell for that sort of approach. So we have to be more innovative. We have to rely on our innovation. We have to be willing to take risks. And this, again, is anathema to the industry, which has become very conservative, very risk averse. But the only way to survive is to accept risk in a very measured way. And that's the way we're going to, we're going to succeed in the future. <clears throat> and I would add on to this that neglected disease markets and the developing world are going to be the wave of the future. Once we can address the, ne the neglected disease, we'll be able to cure a lot of the ills of society. And let's face it, the developing world is not going to be developing forever. This is the wave of the future, so we need to find some way to tap into this. And I would just uh, sum up the, the naysayers who come on with the, the comments that there's no money to be made. We can't, it's not a sustainable future in, the negle in neglected diseases or in some of these small markets, I think are missing the point. There's enough companies out there that have shown that this is, in fact, not the, not the case. And I would hearken back to a sentiment that George Merck actually uttered a number of years ago, that <clears throat> the best way to move forward to do well is to do good. Great. Thank you, Craig. Uh, John Crowley, your perspective? Great, thanks, Steve. So, uh, as Steve said in his introduction, our family's journey has been fairly well documented over the last 12 years in Pompeii disease, and I'll tell you what that is shortly. And when the movie Extraordinary Measures came out earlier this year, it was a great platform for us with Harrison Ford and others starring in it to tell the story, not only of the rare disease world and Pompeii disease, but also specifically about innovation in medicine. And we had a chance here in America and then abroad to, to tour the film. And, and let me start with a question that was posed to me uh, by an Italian journalist back in April when the film was opening in Italy. And she asked me in a, in a beautiful Italian accent, she said, John, she said, could this have happened in Italy or anywhere else in the world? So hold that question for a second and I'll tell you what it is. In 1998, uh, two of our children, Megan and Patrick, uh, Megan then 15 months old, Patrick, then only seven days old, were diagnosed with a rare form of muscular dystrophy called Pompeii disease. Uh, we'd never heard of it. We're silent carriers, so there's no history in our families. We were told what many, many people have been told over the years when you're in a doctor's office facing a diagnosis like that, then I'm sorry, there's nothing that can be done. Go back, spend time with your children. They'll live maybe a couple of more years. There's nothing we can do. And I think for Eileen and I, my wife and I, we went through all of the emotions, the, um, the shock, the grief, the denial, the anger, and, and eventually, very quickly, to determination to, on one hand, give our kids the best life we could, 
but also to do everything we could to try to move the ball a little bit and to maybe buy some time and quality of life and to drive science toward a treatment for that disease. And I won't take you through the, the whole story, but if you fast forward from 1998 uh, to where we are today, um, by early 2003, Megan and Patrick received a drug that ended up saving their lives, and it was a drug that began to be developed by a tiny little biotech company I started in early 2000, as I grew increasingly frustrated two years post-diagnosis with the pace of development, and that was a drug and enzyme replacement therapy that would replace the enzyme missing in Megan and Patrick to help break down sugar that was stored in the form of glycogen in their muscles. Um, in that company, we started with four people, $37,000 in seed money. We raised about a million dollars in angel money. Um, we then raised 27 million in venture capital. Eventually, we took it so far, but not so far that we could get the medicine to the kids. We needed the muscle of a larger drug development company. We needed access to manufacturing expertise, to clinical expertise, and to a lot more money. So we agreed to have our little company sold that we had started in early 2000 by the end of 2001 for $200 million to a large biotech called Genzyme. And with that, my entire company went and I went to lead their drug development programs in these rare diseases. And even then, we faced roadblocks with regulatory agencies with manufacturing challenges. But eventually that, you know, probably the best day that you can have working in the pharmaceutical industry happened for us when our kids were the 27th and 28th kids in the world to receive this medicine for Pompeii disease. And the initial effects were tremendous. I mean, they went from being, you know, laying flat in bed, not being able to move, to sitting up and smiling and Things like going back to school and, you know, their hearts that were two times normal size, they went back down to normal, but it wasn't a cure. It was a treatment, and it bought quality of life, and fast forward even more to today, Megan is now 13 and a half years old, Patrick is 12 and a half, they're still in wheelchairs, they're not cured, but they've got a good quality of life. They're amazingly smart, precocious little kids, they go to public school, and I think, you know, really their journey and their strength and their being proxies for so many other children, not only with Pompeii disease, but for kids living with so many of these rare diseases, has really inspired, I think, a lot of people to think about, well, where are we and why did this happen? So we have today, get back to the question of the Italian journalist, could this happen in Italy? And I thought about it, I thought about it particularly because Eileen and I are celebrating our 20th anniversary this fall and we're going to Italy for seven days, so I wanted to be careful how I posed it, the answer, and I said, no, I don't think so. I said, we have a really unique system and it's far from perfect in the United States, but it's this virtuous system that leads to the development of so many innovative and novel technologies, the vast majority of new medicines in the world being developed here in America and have been for the last several decades. And when you think about our story, it was from local doctors and physicians to families coming together to form patient groups to philanthropic organizations helping us with early fundraising, groups like the Muscular Dystrophy Association. It was academic research that led to the early findings. It was the licensing of that research out of universities into a tiny little biotech company where some entrepreneurs took a lot of risk personally and professionally where angel investors stepped up to help with the dream and, and the, the idea of building something really special. 
venture capital came in, eventually larger drug companies, NIH researchers helped with some of the, the animal models we were working on and some of the early research. Eventually the FDA became involved and by 2006, 2003 we had a medicine in clinical studies, 2006 we had a medicine approved. Not a cure, but an effective treatment. That's a really unique system. That doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. And I agree, I think we're at a tipping point broadly, not just for rare diseases, but for the entire innovative system of how we develop medicines in America, to think about where are we gonna go the next 20, 10, 20, 30 years, because we really are on the cusp of a golden age of medicine where so many diseases that people suffer with today really can be effectively tr diagnosed, treated, and I believe ultimately cured in our lifetimes. But that kind of virtuous model that we have now is being threatened in a lot of different ways. We have uh, an FDA that's underfunded. We have an FDA that's understaffed, undermotivated. You come up with a lot of adjectives. They're realizing some of these problems in the Critical Path Report, other initiatives from <coughs> the Institute of Medicine, the FDA, are starting to realize this. Even just two weeks ago, the FDA held an open hearing on the state of rare disease drug development. Um, take rare diseases alone, there are 7,000 rare diseases that just in the United States affect more than 30 million people. Since the Orphan Drug Act that provided a framework for developing drugs came about 27 years ago, we have over 300 drugs for 200 of those diseases, so we've taken some good steps forward, but we have a long way to go. So one of the major impediments is that medical science is 10, 20, 30 years ahead in some cases of regulatory science. We still develop drugs in this you know, preclinical phase one, phase two, phase three model that was developed 30, 40 years ago. And we still do double-blinded placebo controls. We need to really be creative and aggressive. We need to think about the willingness that we have to take risk in approving drugs that are gonna help a tremendous amount of people and in having surveillance systems to study them after they're on the market to thousands, potentially even millions of people. So reforming the regulatory model is one important piece. I think another important piece, and then I'll, I'll stop and, and turn it back to Steve, is our appetite for risk in a lot of different ways, not just from a regulatory standpoint, from a capital market standpoint. This great recession, whatever you call it, over the last couple of years has had a tremendous impact on innovation in biotechnology. In 2007, the company I run today, Amicus uh, Therapeutics, where we work in human genetic diseases and diseases with strong genetic components like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, we went public with a lot of fanfare and attention in 2007. We were one of 35 biotech companies to access the public markets in 2007. Since the middle of 2008, over the last two years, five biotech companies have gone public in the last 24 months and there are very few, if any, in the pipeline to go public. That's happened in the past, and it's been very cyclical. I think we're actually in a very different world where it's actually quite structural, where venture capitalists don't like investing in early stage technology companies because of the risk involved, because of knowing that one of their primary means to monetize their investment, the IPO market is shut. And then with the IPO market shut, you've got this whole venue for access to capital that stalled and potentially stopped for a long, long time. So I think there's a lot we can do, and then I would just ask, add thirdly to Craig's point about how we think about R&D in America uh, very, very broadly, and it has a huge impact. If we can just invent a medicine that would delay the onset of Alzheimer's symptoms by five years, 
we would at that point in time have a million and a half fewer people with Alzheimer's. They would be productive people. They would be people who would be less consuming of, of the healthcare system. Over 10 years, we would save $100 billion, most of which is paid by Medicare, if we just learned to innovate, to compete, and to set up a system that could support all that. So other than that, it works great. Thank you so much. There, there are so many places we could go from here because you brought up so many fascinating issues. I guess what strikes me uh, is it must be true that more collaborations of the sort we're talking about don't occur than do occur right now because you're at the forefront and we've looked at the statistics. So it would be useful, I think, to start penetrating a little more into well, what are the obstacles to scaling the types of things you're doing. Um, and, and how do you get at them? You've got issues of self-interest, institutional self-interest, different institutional priorities. Some people want to write papers, some people want to make money, some people, you know, there's a lot of different stuff. There's the profit, the nonprofit realms. Um, what, what are the chief obstacles to replicating the type of work that, that you folks are doing and how do you, get, how do you go about doing that? Uh, you want Scott to give us a shot? Sure, I'll take a shot. Um, I would say, first of all, we believe that, that it's, better to be bottom-up than top-down. And I think that, that splitting problems as narrowly as possible and attacking them specifically uh, is really the best way to do it. And, and, and so uh, I think if you're really gonna have collaboration, uh, true collaboration I think works best in smaller teams where there's a lot of trust and chemistry develops. Uh, I think one thing that, that we, we have uh, four core labs at four different universities that we fund then there's about uh, 35 scientists in those labs, and then we fund some uh, satellite labs as well. And we're very careful about thinking about adding additional labs because the camaraderie, I mean, because we're asking these scientists to behave very different than they would in normal life. Uh, normally, I mean, most people think of academics as, as very collaborative and collegial <coughs> and sharing information, and actually nothing could be further from the <laughs> truth. And so what we had to do was create a protected environment, and it took us a couple years until they felt safe. And so adding additional members, I think, is, is, is it's a complex thing. So we believe that you want to, to uh, divide things up as narrowly as possible and build collaborative teams and attack them that way as opposed to having something come down from the top and mandate and trying to attack all of cancer or something like that. I think the more you can split it up, the better. I mean, I think the fact that we felt like even multiple sclerosis was much too broad of a, of a, of a, of a, a thing, something to attack. And so we took only one small element of that, which was myelin repair, and that's what our focus is. And so I, I think that, that collaboration is, especially when you're innovating and, and, and trying to do something new and cause people to do things that are very counter to what they've grown up in the system doing, you just have to, to go, go about that uh, carefully, I think. You know, I, I guess I would add in terms of obstacles, and I, that's actually the focus of this book, The Power of Pull, and we'll have a session at 2.30 this afternoon to talk about the book. But a couple of the key, in, in my mind, and I, I work a lot with large-scale institutional change, uh, and every time I can tell you it comes down to mindsets. It comes down to the basic beliefs you have about what is required for success. And I would say as a highly oversimplified view, we are largely operating, and I don't just mean this for the healthcare field, but across all business, and in fact across all institutions, with a mindset that the value is in knowledge stocks. It's in what you know today, and it's the ability to protect that knowledge, keep it proprietary, and to as efficiently as possible extract the value from that knowledge. 
increasingly we're moving into a world where knowledge stocks depreciate at an accelerating rate. And if we don't find ways to participate in knowledge flows so that we learn faster and very diverse knowledge flows, we are going to be left farther and farther behind. And I will say, while there are huge problems in scaling this in the U.S. Uh, and particularly healthcare for all the reasons Scott talked about, the leaders in developing these alternative approaches uh, to these global process networks are actually in China and India. The most sophisticated companies building very scalable networks, in some cases 10,000 business partners working together around a common set of business activities, is in China and India. It's not here. So I think that's a huge challenge for us in the U.S. to figure that out. Totally agree with you on the concept of knowledge silos. I think the, the whole concept that if I go outside my comfort zone, I could lose, therefore I'm not going to do that, is a major deterrent to setting up successful networks. Um, the fact that you take risk is something that as a society now, I think we're, we're very much averse to doing. Um, I want to just address something that Scott said. For organizations like MRF, the idea of being very narrow in your focus is absolutely the way to go. But then you come to an organization such as, as a Vertex, if we were to take a, such a narrow view onto the world, just one area, one very focused area, we probably wouldn't exist very long. And so what, what we do, and again, this is one of the challenges you face, is we have to go up a few more thousand feet from that, if you will, and we have to be able to take the pieces that organizations like MRF, the CF Foundation, and others have put into place and pull those together into the next order of magnitude of organization because this way we can look across multiple organizations, multiple models of input, still not so large that we lose control, but enough that we can take lessons learned here in myelin repair and in CF, which is another success story, um, and we can apply what we learn there to new diseases, to new areas. And so we build our knowledge base, and by doing that, we can actually de-risk a lot of the exploration that we are going to have to do out of necessity in order to survive. Maybe just to add briefly, I think to step back a little bit further, you know, we've spent a lot of time in the last six or 12 months talking about healthcare in America. And we talked about a lot of problems. We talked about access and how to get people, more people, all people, access to quality medicines, which we have to do. We talked about costs, but I th think that we talked about in the wrong way, Steve. I think we talked about maintaining costs, controlling costs, and I think that's the wrong way to look at it because it touched, uh, touches on the third issue in healthcare, which we gave uh, very short uh, attention to, and that's innovation and competition and entrepreneurship, and how do you drive that to solve these problems? I think that's ultimately where all these solutions are going to come from in driving that innovation. So some very specific ideas, you know, what if we had a federal tax credit for angel investing in medical technology, biotechnology companies, would spur a whole new generation of these companies and fill in a gap that's, you know, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty serious in the, in the economy right now. The federal R&D tax credit, it's about 14%. We rank 17th in the developed world in terms of what we give for a tax credit for R&D. If we were to just get it to the median, we could create, it's a, and a couple different reports came out recently, 300 to 400,000 new jobs in the biomedical industry in the United States. What a tremendous engine for growth. So I think if we think about development of medicines and innovation 
not just to extend and enhance human life, which of course is so tremendously important, but is an amazing strategic resource for the United States in growing, and not just the United States, but broadly the world in, in how we think about biomedical research. Um, I think that, fueled by ideas about uh, what we've talked about in the panel, is, is going to be incredibly important to the next generation of therapies. I think that's just part of the problem or part of the, part of the solution. Because sure just simply putting more money, more tax credits to, to R&D, while you can, you can stimulate the basic, the basic research, the basic development, we're still faced with the issue that, as scientists, we have become more and more risk-averse. We do what is safe. We do something that we know. We do something that is very core to what we're able to do. Because quite frankly, if you're in academia, if you don't get your publications out, now I'm reverting to my academic life, you are, you are screwed. This is, how you, this is how you go forward. Screwed big time. Screwed yeah. big time. <laughs> and so there is no reward for taking risk, for being innovative. So we need to find something going back even further to train scientists into reestablishing, taking hold again, taking control again of what made early American science great, and that is innovation. Take risks. Ask the questions. Ask the right questions, not just ask the easy questions. And this is what's going to drive, I think, the innovation which will flow then into everything else. I think a lot of that, Craig, is going to be related to the focus on translational medicine. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Getting, and that's the getting biggest Getting those gap. technologies into medicines, into clinical studies, into patients. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, one of, the, one of the problems is that one of the reasons why VCs are not investing in biotechs is because the returns have just been horrible. Last decade have uh, been awful. For the last 20 or 30 years. And I think part of that is that there, uh, there has to be a better way of, as you said, translating discoveries yeah. out of, out of a, university labs, de-risking them, doing a certain amount of validation so that then companies can get started around them. And, and you, if you can do that around better targets, then you're going to have a higher success rate in, in the industry. Which gets back to the other end of the funnel of once we do all of that and we put it how into drug we, development how do we with the forward? FDA, how do we change that whole world? Because otherwise you've just increased you know, the mouth of the funnel, but you still have the end of it that doesn't have any difference whatsoever. Well, well let's get to regulation. So, uh, what would be the kind of the single most important regulatory change that would really help in drug development? Bring them into the 21st century? In what way? Um, <laughs> I, I think, and, and again, I think, John, you were the one to, uh, who mentioned it, is FDA is vastly understaffed. There has been a deprioritization for some reason on appropriately bringing FDA up into the scientific 20th, 21st century, and I don't understand what the reason of that is. Um, they, they're overworked, they have too much coming in, and I would argue that a lot of the material coming into them probably shouldn't even get to them at this point. It's too early, it's too premature. We're, we're rushing to, to look for some sort of judgment earlier than we should, so we're clogging the system. Part of, the, part of it is the way that the culture is developed at the agency. If you approve a drug that then gets out to market and ends up to be proven to actually be harmful to people, like a Vioxx, you lose your career, Absolutely. you get called before Congress, you're on TV, I mean, it's a really tough situation. You do your job and you approve a drug that gets out to patients a year or two sooner than it otherwise would, you're an unsung, unknown hero. And that's partly cultural and partly how, how we set up the system of incentives within the agency. Um, I think one very specific thing we can do, we really are 
looking at a whole new world of personalized medicine. We've taken the unraveling of the human genome 10 years ago and are now understanding what it means for drug development. But that hasn't caught up. So if we look, for instance, at biomarkers in drug development, at surrogate endpoints, about 20 years ago, the HIV community, AIDS community, was tremendous in forcing the FDA to approve drugs like AZT on remarkably short timelines, much to the benefit of people suffering with HIV. Since then, FDA actually put that in regulations, subpart H, accelerated approval, six-month reviews, get medicines very quickly to people. It's, been, it's worked, probably in the HIV world. About 19, 20 drugs have been approved in the last 20 years. In, in my world of rare diseases, genetic medicine, one drug in 20 years has been approved under accelerated approval. Uh, before we get to questions from the audience, I, I want to ask you about Big Pharma. No, none of you are part of Big Pharma. Uh, can Big Pharma become innovators again? Are they going in the right direction um, in terms of getting out of that more, or what, what should they be doing? I, I think they have to. There's simply no answer. I, you know, consumer meds will fill the gap for a little period of time, but as the population ages and you've got these tremendous unmet medical needs, just take Parkinson's and Alzheimer's alone. What that's going to consume of our healthcare budget, let alone the suffering that that, that will that will uh, you know so many people will, will suffer with. The um, I, I think that whole world has got to change. Where pharma companies have to think more like entrepreneurial companies. They have to get back. They're going to have to lose these massive R and D infrastructures. Some of them have started to do it. Um, GlaxoSmithKline has been particularly aggressive in the area. Bristol Myers is now focusing on more targeted areas of medicine, getting away from the primary care field. Um, I think they're going to be forced to do it. I think it's going to be very painful for some of them. Incredibly painful. I think you, you've got a, a whole sociological change that has to take place because you're, you're battling the, the desire to retain with the need to give away. And that is a, that's, that's a battle of epic proportions for most of big pharma. And the other one, and it's a trite, it's a, you know, it's a trite metaphor, is we're, it really is a ship. It's trying to move the Titanic or trying to move the QE2 or the Queen Mary 2 on a dime. It's just not gonna happen. It's gonna take time, but I agree, it has to happen. Otherwise, um, if it doesn't, the pharmaceutical industry of tomorrow is gonna look very, very different from the pharmaceutical industry of today. We're not gonna see these, these megalithic structures anymore. We're gonna see smaller, more networked uh, entities that are more willing to work together and to, to uh, spread risk among them. I guess I would say, I, th I think the answer is that we're investing a lot of money in academic research. And I think that if you can make it much more therapeutically relevant, if you can educate academics on what industry needs, uh, one thing that it's very hard to do to get funding for is to develop biomarkers, yes. to develop new tools. And those aren't funded currently by the NIH typically or by disease organizations. And so I think one thing that we saw as part of this new model is that we as a nonprofit have a unique role to play and, and we want to use our nonprofit status to its optimum advantage and make investments like that. So we actually, in our collaborative team, have developed about 30 models and we, in reaching out to industry over the last year or so, know that some of those models may be as important <coughs> or valuable to industry as the targets that we've identified. So I think that there are a lot of ways that you can use academic uh, resources in terms of the brain power that's there in an effective way to identify really good targets, to develop biomarkers, which will have implications for FDA 
and also to develop these tools, which were also used to be, the, the, the tools help you speed up the drug development process. So I think there's a lot of things that, that nonprofits can do that they haven't done in the past. And I think that's one of our key messages and one of the things that we think about our, our model. There's nothing specific that we've done in our model that's specific to monitor for MS. We've purposely, as we've developed this, uh, had the idea in mind that this could be used for any disease. And, and it's actually interesting because when people really hear what we're doing, it's incredibly basic. It's just simple business 101. Um, it is difficult to e execute, though, because you're trying to cause people to behave differently, to get academics to behave very differently, to, to get companies to have the courage to come back and work with academics in a nonprofit. Uh, Vertex has, we've signed an agreement with Vertex, and we're talking to other companies right now. Vertex is very innovative, and the fact that they were willing to think about working with academics and a nonprofit in a completely new way, that is, we think, an important precedent for working with other companies. So, um, okay, last, last comment, and then we'll move to questions. If I could just add, I think that uh, there's been a lot of talk about increasing risk averseness, and I do think there's a perverse effect here, and it's what I call the curse of the deep pocket, and it doesn't just apply to the pharma industry. Again, it's more broadly distributed. If you have very deep pockets, you have a strong temptation to try to do it all yourself. Mm -hmm. It's hugely risky if you do it all yourself, both because you put all the money in, and secondly, you don't have as much diversity in terms of approaches to figure out the answer to the problem. So if you go to these more networked forms of, of uh, innovation, you end up with a situation where you're d reducing risk, both in terms of the amount of investment required by any single entity, and you're encouraging a much more diverse set of approaches that can actually move in parallel around these challenging problems rather than sequentially. So I think that there's some very interesting opportunities that are created by this more networked approach that pharma companies as well as most companies are gonna have to uh, be much more aggressive in exploring. Okay, let's go to questions. Uh, there are microphones coming around and it would be great if you could stand and say who you are. Um, go ahead. Yeah, my name is Al Engelberg. I'm an IP attorney and I find it fascinating that the word patent wasn't mentioned once. <laughs> in this discussion. Uh, my question is, uh, given the amount of collaboration you all seem to think is necessary, to what extent do you view the current patent system as a hindrance? And, and what kind of innovation system or reward system would you replace it with? Uh, I'll, I'll take on that one. Um, that was one thing that we saw when we uh, uh, looked into this uh, about six or seven years ago, is we realized that actually very few academic discoveries get patented because the the payback is so long, the technology licensing offices at the universities don't want to invest the money to patent biological discoveries. And so we saw that as an issue because if you do have a great breakthrough discovery, it's very hard for a company, if they do identify it, if they sift through those 800,000 papers and find it, to want to take that on because they, they wouldn't have the freedom to operate. So one thing that we do do that's very different and unique is we uh, negotiated agreements with the member universities, and these are universities like Stanford, University of Chicago, et cetera. And in, under those agreements, we actually uh, pay for the patents so that we patent the IP, and we actually have 20 patentable inventions in the first five years. And, but we, and we have sole licensing rights to go out to pharma so we can identify the right partners with, uh, depending on what the discoveries are, what skills at companies that would be most appropriate to approach, and then we can work with those companies. So we think IP is an incredibly important point that has actually been a, a hindrance up to until now because people weren't patenting and it's something that we do as part of our model. 
speaker. Well, let me uh, take a slightly different approach to that. Let's face it, in the pharma industry, the patent on the chemical matter is king. This is what matters. This is what you really want to protect. And all of the other accoutrements, if you will, that go with that are to varying degrees more or less important. So my personal opinion <clears throat> is there are a lot of biological discoveries that probably shouldn't be patented. I think that the faster we can get these out into the community and to stimulate competition, the better off we're going to be in the long run because this is what's going to allow a wider range of companies, a, lot of, a wider range of organizations to actually make the breakthrough discoveries that they really need. So if we use patents as a weapon or if we use them as a way of, um, okay, I'm going to take my toys and you're, I'm not going to play with you in your sandbox anymore, I think we all stand to lose. And so we need to really take a look at how we use that. Let's take some of the questions. Um, um, over here, right up front. I'm Sheldon. I'm Sheldon Pinnell uh, on the Duke faculty, medical faculty. And uh, my point would be that uh, talk about innovation, the person that best can do that job, I think, is the physician scientist. And physician scientists have disappeared, and they've disappeared because when you're a physician, at the time you finish your medical school training, you have roughly a quarter of a million dollars of debt. And so those loans become due at a time when you have to go out into the into the uh, medical profession to, to solve that problem. So there's a great opportunity, I think, to solve that problem if it's recognized. Interesting. Okay, uh, back here. Hi, uh, Greg Frost, San Diego. Um, from the context of, of thinking about the valley of death and, and bringing technologies forward from the context of innovative technologies, new targets, um, you know, running a, a small cap biotech, you know, there's a balance that goes through. And we, we do great of setting up great partnerships with academia um, and develop some very innovative technologies. One of the challenges, though, is that on the back end, um, most companies of our size are heavily dependent upon our relationships with big pharma to take things across the finish line. And that can be end of phase two, phase three commercial, and the rest of it. No one wants to go through and, and you know, do the fully integrated PCP Salesforce sort of thing. But the challenge is that there is this addiction that exists for previously validated targets. And you know, one of the challenges that we face is that when we go through and we think about our internal portfolio management, we have low-risk programs that we can partner very early on because Big Pharma can put an NPV around it because they can model it. And when you look at the allocation of resources that you put into innovative new targets, orthogonal methods, we do recombinant biologics, but when you look in the context of low-risk versus high-risk, part of the challenge is that the NPV of that target which has not been validated, that's in a completely new therapeutic class, is something that you have to push that much further down the road before it 
can be de-risked to a point that you can hand it off. Whereas something that is validated, you know, you, you take a look and there's 15 people that, you know, 15 pharmaceutical companies all surfing the same wave of the same target because it's comfortable. And I think, you know, the question that comes to group is thinking about innovative strategies, either from a regulatory approach, as far as new targets versus established targets, of how to de-risk it or increase the incentives such that that ability to drive innovative components can actually make it an NPV positive approach so that you can allocate more resources. Anybody to want it. to comment? I'll just, you know, <laughs> my first day in biotechnology, I, I didn't go out to our labs in Oklahoma. Um, I went out to the bio show in Boston and the keynote speaker was a quadriplegic and he came out and he said, biotechnology is a great big word that means hope. And he talked about hopes and dreams and medicines that might, may not save his life or ever let him walk again. But they gave hope to people years down the road, a kid who'd be in a car accident weeks from them. And that was Christopher Reeve who gave that speech, and he was right. We didn't come up with a drug to solve his paralysis in his lifetime. We need to put back the dreaming and the hope and the excitement, things that companies like Genentech were founded on 30 years ago. We need to put that back. We need dreamers, we need risk takers. It's a tough sell, you're absolutely right. When you've got to sell your, bi your new biology, your new pharmacology, and your new technology and molecules, big pharma doesn't want to listen until that's de-risked. You know, they, they play a role, those partnerships do play a role, and I think they fill some of the gap. We need to put the dreaming in, the risk taking, and I think what we've talked about in a lot of these different ideas and solutions will help bring that back in. Um, okay, up, up front here. Joe Rotman from Toronto, Canada, and we're working in uh, global health through the University of Toronto and with the federal government. Although the topic is pipeline, uh, I wondered if you could comment on the ability to have whatever is developed integrated into what yesterday uh, was talked about, the bottom billion, with particular focus on Africa and the difficulties of drug development into the pipeline but not getting used where the greatest need is. Great. Great. Let me, I can maybe answer that partially. One of the programs that we have implemented at Vertex is actually in the area of tuberculosis. Tuberculosis is arguably one of the biggest killers globally. It's perceived as a disease that is restricted to developing nations, but in fact, it's pervasive across, across all nations to varying degrees, and it's only gonna get worse as we go forward with the, the more melding of cultures and the, and, the, um, and the areas where right now it's endemic. And so we recognize this as, as an issue and something that we feel very strongly about that we want to address. Now, the bottom line of this is we're not gonna be able to do it ourselves, we're gonna need help we're gonna need some sort of network model, which is exactly what we put in place. And the, the idea is this, that if you really want to affect a cure and find solutions, you need to engage at the grassroots level in the areas in which it's endemic. And this doesn't mean a company like Vertex or Amicus or GSK or Merck or <coughs> whoever going in and setting up a facility where they're gonna do manufacture or they're gonna do sales or something like that. What this means is actively engaging with the scientists, with the local infrastructure, so far as it exists, and help them build up their own capabilities to add that, 
that drive, that, that emotion, that, that magic back into the equation. And this is it's actually working quite nicely for us in the, in the TB program. And I think this is what we're going to have to do going forward. We can't impose the West views on these areas. We have to grow it organically within the local communities, within the local economies, where it is, it really is a problem and it speaks to the bottom of, of economic survival in some cases. John Hagel? I just wanted to say that there was a panel yesterday which had some interesting observations on this, and one of the comments took me by surprise, but it makes, it makes sense when you reflect on it. Uh, an entrepreneur was saying that uh, you have to realize that the vast majority of people who become sick will never see a doctor. And so if you rely on doctors as the delivery mechanism to get medications and support to these people who are sick, you are fighting a losing battle, at least in the, in the foreseeable future. So the question is, how can you innovate around drug delivery and monitoring technology and, and approaches that allow you to leapfrog where there is no doctor and reach those patients? And there's a there is a very interesting company on the panel by the name of Proteus, which is pioneering some of those technologies. So. Other questions? Uh, OK, uh, in the middle in the back there. Okay. <coughs> Microphone's coming over from your other side. Thank you. Um, John, I hadn't realized it before, but I've spent the last four years working on a process network. Um, <laughs> and I've been assembling uh, with a team about 100 payers, regulators, patients, medical experts across Europe, uh, eight countries. And what struck me in the conversation thus far is it seems very front-loaded. And I was curious, given the uh, what I see as a uh, decreasing relevance of regulators and an increasing relevance of payers, how you all are engaging that side of the ecosystem, which is actually even a harder problem, I think, than the regulatory side, because it's more fragmented. You sit down with the venture investors today to start a new biotech company. <coughs> they're going to ask you about your patents. They're going to ask you about what's the path to approval. And then they're going to ask you, what are you going to charge, and what's the reimbursement going to be? And across that whole area, there's increasing uncertainty. And investors, of course, hate uncertainty. So we absolutely, you know, we try to work very proactively, very early. Medicines for genetic diseases tend to be very expensive, so bring the third-party payers in, including, of course, Medicare, Medicaid, and all of that. I think it's a dialogue, and I think it's understanding, yes, the pharmacoeconomic benefits, but also more broadly how you work with the third-party payers and, and not deal with it when all of a sudden you've got a drug that's approved and you sit down to talk about reimbursement. Mm -hmm. It's a very, it should be a very lengthy continual series of discussions. Will healthcare reform help or hurt in that area? <laughs> what time are we supposed to end? <laughs> yes. Lunch. No. Last question. <laughs> well, the only thing I would, in, in answer to the question maybe is that I think that, that as was mentioned by Craig, most of the new approvals have been Me Too drugs or slight improvements on what is already existing. And I think that's what's made that argument come up. I think if you really are taking more risks and getting effective new treatments for difficult diseases, I don't think there's going to be a payment issue because you're going to be having such an effect on, on disability and, and reducing disability costs that will be a, a very clear payoff. I, I think in a perverse way it may, it may help because it's going to force the drug developers to actually ask the hard questions. And to rather come up, rather than come up with panaceas or partial solutions, 
in order to get reimbursed, you're going to have to come up with some real solutions. And so making the next Vioxx or making the next Celebrex, it's just not going to cut it anymore. You really have to come up with something that's going to make a difference. And I, I totally agree with Scott that if you have something that is a cure that can actually restore health, restore functionality with all of its attendant um, upsides to it, I don't think the payers are going to have that big a an argument with it. There will be there will be challenges and arguments, absolutely. But I think at the end, it would be, they would be very hard pressed to to deny access of this to the you know the public. I'm afraid we're out of time. I want to thank the panelists and all of you.